Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, the Hoover Institution and world-renowned library and archives have been collecting knowledge and generating ideas that support the pursuit of freedom and endeavor to improve the human condition. We've been able to occupy an eminent place in the think tank landscape by maintaining a focus on scholarly and empirical research that asks bold questions, offers powerful solutions for policymakers, and advances ideas to improve people's lives. These briefings are just one of the many ways we're able to share some of the important work coming out of the institution. Thank you for joining us today. We'll be taking audience questions, and I want to encourage you to submit yours using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today, we have a special briefing for you. There are very few people anywhere in the world who have had a front row seat and have played such a significant role in determining the outcome of so many major historical events. And although he needs no introduction, I want to tell you that George P. Schultz has had a distinguished career in government and academia and in the world of business. He is one of two individuals in American history who have held four different federal cabinet posts. He has taught at three of the country's great universities, and for eight years, he was president of a major engineering and construction company. In 1955, he served as a senior staff economist on President Dwight Eisenhower's Council of Economic Advisors. In 1969, he was appointed Secretary of Labor by President Richard Nixon. In 1970, he became the first director of the newly formed Office of Management and Budget. In 1972, he was named Secretary of Treasury, and from 1982 to 1989, he served as Secretary of State for President Ronald Reagan. Hoover is privileged to have George as the Thomas W. and Susan B. Ford Distinguished Fellow. George, thank you very much for being with us today. We're honored that you're here. I'm glad to be here, have a conversation. Thanks, George. Uh, the pandemic is an example how some of the most consequential challenges that we face here in the United States are also faced by other countries around the world, too. What can we learn from historical experience about how to address such global problems? I think we learn that much of our well-being depends on our relationships with other countries around the world. Mm -hmm. We're not alone. We are surrounded by other countries with other populations and desires and climates and so on. But when we reach out and try to have global consensus, we tend to do better. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. At the end of World War II, the economy had been shredded before the war. And um, so the United States convened a big conference at Bretton Woods. There were 40 countries there. Mm -hmm. Out of it came the IMF to worry about currency problems, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which now is the World Bank, to look at development problems, and the, GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade to get tariffs down and trade barriers down, now morphed into the World Trade Organization. Mm -hmm. That was a that was not the United States telling people what to do. It was the United States convening something and developing a consensus on what to do. Mm -hmm. That's what works. George, I know one of the projects you've led here at the Hoover Institution is a project entitled Governance in an Emerging New World. Um, 
it included a number of roundtables and panels on campus that talked about and studied the kind of uh, challenges that are facing us now. What were the highlights that you can share from that experience with the audience? Have you got a half an hour? Uh, how, how about five minutes? <laughs> <laughs> we start with the notion that the world is on a hinge of history. The future is going to be different from the past in major ways. Let me put this in the context of what happened after World War II. Mm -hmm. They were also on a hinge of history. And when Truman, Atchison, Marshall, and Clayton looked back, what did they see? They saw two world wars. The first one was settled in rather vindictive terms that helped lead to the second. Mm -hmm. They saw 22 million people were killed in the Second World War. They saw the Great Depression. They saw the protectionism and currency manipulation that aggravated it. And they said, what a crummy world. Mm -hmm. But after World War I, we walked away from it. After World War II, they said, we're part of it, whether we like it or not. So then comes along the Bretton Woods meeting that I mentioned earlier. We got, and that laid the economic foundation for what happened afterwards. Then came the Marshall Plan. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it was not us telling people what to do. It was us saying to say, France, your country is demolished. What's your plan for picking it up? And if it looks sensible, we'll help finance it. And then you had the Cold War and NATO. NATO was a terrific um, organization. I worked with it very closely. <clears throat> and so this was a um, consensus building. Mm -hmm. and I think it's fair to say that when the Cold War came to an end, there had been built a security and economic commons in the world mm -hmm. everybody benefited from. That commons is now eroding. Mm -hmm. And things are coming at us that are different. For example, the <clears throat> demography of the world is changing very rapidly. Mm -hmm. all, all developed countries have low fertility and rising longevity. Mm -hmm. So the age structure of their population is changing radically. <clears throat> Most are losing working age population, some rapidly. That's true of Russia, Germany, Japan, China. It's very important because your rate of increase in GDP is a rate of increase in the labor force plus the productivity of the labor force. Right. If your labor force is going nowhere, it's hard to have much of a GDP. The United States, Canada, and Australia are exceptions to this rule because we're all three are immigration countries. Mm -hmm. so we are not losing working age population, although our demographic trends are the same. At any rate, <clears throat> um, we see that taking place. Huge demographic change. The world population will continue to increase because of the high fertility in Africa, mostly. Mm -hmm. But the African countries are ones where there are not too many job opportunities and where they're agriculture oriented and climate change. Yes, there is climate change. It's coming mm -hmm. out as fast. Uh, produces drought conditions. So people will move. Mm -hmm. uh, the world is not ready for large-scale movement of people. Mm -hmm. That's a big problem that's looming. Yeah. Then we have new technology, artificial intelligence, 
very powerful development. And, and we have 3D printing, which people haven't gotten onto yet. But uh, these are for little projects and big projects. Yeah. I have a grandson, a smart kid. And the other night, weekend, he was over and I saw him sitting there. And he had a little 3D printer he bought for $70. And he was making the parts for the motorboat that he had on a lake. <laughs> we can't beat it. But then there are gigantic projects. And I think we're going to see a major deglobalization as it's possible more and more to build the things you want close to where you are. And so that's a big thing that's happening. Interesting. Cutting across these climate change, which is accelerating. And you read about all the stuff going on in the Arctic, you see how sure. rapidly that's all melting. It has big implications. So we have climate change coming and we have new weaponry. That's let alone atomic weapons. Yeah. New weaponry, I can't help but think about that uh, Iranian drone that went some distance undetected and mm -hmm. that hit a Saudi Arabian major oil facility yeah. right yeah. on the button. Mm -hmm. That means any fixed installation is vulnerable anywhere. Mm -hmm. Drones are cheap. They can be fitted out with very powerful explosives. Yeah, yeah. We've got a different world here. Yeah. So I see we're in a different world and we got to start figuring out what to do. Yeah, George, let's, let's, let's dig deeper into some of these issues. I know that you've uh, studied the energy, energy picture extensively here at Hoover and with your colleagues at Stanford and MIT. We have a question from Robert King, which is, uh, global climate change is our biggest problem to be solved. How do we collaborate with China and I presume other major energy users to help solve this problem? Well, I think China is on, right on the willingness to do things. They have been over here. Big Chinese delegation came to Hoover not long ago, and we talked to them. The, what I have been advocating, and it's beginning to get somewhere, is a fee on carbon with the money collected from the fee rebated to the population so there's no fiscal drag connected with it so it's not like a regular tax and also since you we would give the same amount of money to everybody with a social security card it would be in a sense sort of progressive tax implications mm -hmm. and then we would put a fee on any import and the fee would be on whatever its carbon content is Got it. so quite equalize competitively here and abroad and I think this were implemented, there's a lot of evidence that really would work and help us out of this. But at the same time, then we got to keep up strong support for energy R&D. It's amazing really what these places mm -hmm. have done. As you said, I've been exposed to what Stanford is doing and what MIT is doing. Mm -hmm. and the great improvements in solar energy, for instance, are not an accident. Mm -hmm. They've been out of this R&D and there are many other examples and things that are people are working on. So I think if we do these two things energetically, we'll get there. Great. If you're just joining us, I'm Tom Gilligan, and this is the Hoover Institution's Virtual Policy Briefing with George Schultz. 
Um, George, you, you mentioned demographics first when we started talking about the new changes in the world. Um, g- given demographics and technology, how should the United States approach Russia now? The demographics in Russia are, are really uh, going in a very bad direction. What's the import of that for U.S.-Russia relationships? Well, Russia and China are two important relationships. And in our um, program, we've had one with China, and we've had one with Russia, where people who are very knowledgeable came, they presented papers, we discussed them. And maybe you remember we did it over in the Annenberg Auditorium. Right. We had some riveting discussions there. And then we went over to the big Haas Auditorium. We just announced on campus that we we're going to have this discussion. That place, the place would be full. Yeah. So maybe people have an appetite for this. So here's Russia. Russia has a small economy, mm-hmm. the size of Italy. It has income per capita like Portugal. In other words, it's got a very poor economy. Mm-hmm. It devotes its resources mainly to military. And it, it's formidable. It has a big nuclear weapons storehouse, as well as other things. So you've got to worry about them. But what I would do is I'd sort of do the same thing that I did before when, when Ronald Reagan and I took office. The Cold War was as cold as it could get. They had invaded Afghanistan, the Soviet Union, and President Jimmy Carter cut off all relationships, zero, nothing. So that's what we inherited. And I had been, when I was Secretary of Treasury, I had been in charge of economic relations with the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So I knew quite a few of them. I'd been to Moscow a few times. I'd made some deals that worked and some really riveting experiences. So it didn't seem right to me. Anyway, I got permission somehow to have Ambassador Brennan come over once a week. And our idea was, and we stuck to it, if we see a little weed, let's get it out. We don't need any more problems. Mm-hmm. So by some chance, I was in China. I got back to Andrews Air Force Base, I was lucky to land because it was snowing. Snowed all day Friday, snowed Friday night. Started Friday morning, Saturday morning, it's still snowing. Our phone rings, it's Nancy. She said, how about you and your wife coming on over and have supper with us at the White House? Mm-hmm. So my wife and I go over to the White House and we're sitting around and they start asking me about the Chinese leaders. What do they like? Do they have a sense of humor? Can you find the bottom line? And so on. Then they knew I dealt with the Soviets, so they started asking me about them. And I'm telling about the different guys and their style. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying to myself, you know, this man has never had a real conversation with a big time communist leader. And he's dying to have one. So I said to him, Mr. President, the Brim's coming over here next Tuesday at five. What if I bring him over here and you can talk to him? And the president said, that's a good idea. It'll only take about 10 minutes. All I want to tell him is his new leader, Andropov, had just succeeded Brezhnev. It's interested in a constructive conversation. I'm ready. Wow, that was a blockbuster. Nobody else in the government knew that was how the president thought that was his gut. I could see he and Nancy had talked it over. Mm-hmm. So, um, riding back, and we were there for about an hour and a half. We talked about Soviet Jewry. It wasn't generalizations. He had places, names, 
incidents. We talked about arms control, of course. We also talked a lot about the Pentecostals that had rushed into our embassy in the Carter years, and they were still there. So going back to the State Department with DeBrennan, we said, let's make that our special project. Yeah. We worked on it. And after a while, we exchanged pieces of paper back and forth, and I finally got one I thought was pretty good, and I took it over to the president. And I said, don't call in your lawyer, so poke holes in this. But I think with all this background, if we get the Pentecostals to leave the embassy, they will be allowed to go home and eventually emigrate. Yeah. So Roll the dice. And they did get allowed to go home. And then they were allowed to emigrate, not only the ones who were in the embassy, but about 50, all their families. It was a giant event. Mm -hmm. and the press all wanted to know what happened, how did it happen. Ronald Reagan never said a word. He'd said during the negotiations, he said, I just want something to happen, I won't say a word. Yeah. Well, I feel there were two little elements of trust that came out of that. One was he saw that you could make a deal with the Soviets and they would carry it out. And they saw the same thing. They knew how tempting it is for an American politician to say, look what I did. Mm -hmm. And he said he wouldn't do it and he didn't. Mm. Well, you can trust him. Yeah. And in all these things, I think something to remember is trust is the coin of the realm. Yeah. And as you're trying to do things, develop trust. Yeah. Uh, you're listening to Hoover Distinguished Fellow George Schultz. You can find more research by Hoover Fellows at hoover.org. George, you were around at the beginning and the end of the Cold War, and I have a lot of questions from audience members. Uh, one who uh, informs us that he's a grateful Air Force officer, detailed to state during your tenure, uh, but they all ask the same question, and that is, are we in a new Cold War with China? And what can we do to minimize the possibility of military conflict with China going forward? Well, we seem to be heading that way, but I don't think it's necessary. Yes, China has done a lot of things that we don't like. So we can go at them from the outside in the way we're now doing, or we can do it from the inside out. I found when I became Secretary of State, much to my surprise, our relations with China were lousy. So I went over to Beijing and I said to Deng Xiaoping, who was the leader then, and my counterpart, Wu Chichen, I said, you put on the table everything you want to talk about. I'll put on the table everything I want to talk about. We'll make an agenda out of that and we'll work our way through that agenda. And I'll agree to come here at least once a year. You and Wu Chichen come to the US at least once a year. We meet in international meetings about three times a year. Let's Every time we have one of those, let's take a three hours just for us two and our interpreters. Mm -hmm. else. No publicity and nothing, just two people working at this agenda. And we worked through a lot of problems. So I think I would try to do something like that. I don't know, but I had three encounters with him. One was we had a track two going and we were in Beijing and <clears throat> He was known to be the coming president, and he was known to be, um, but he wasn't president yet. And he gave a dinner party for us, and I sat next to him at the dinner party. And <clears throat> I said to him, when you go to Washington, why don't you stop in San Francisco? 
We've got Chinese American mayors doing a good job and you'll have a good time. And he said, well, I've already said I would have to go to Los Angeles, so I can't do it. But if I came there, what I really want to do is come down to Stanford. Because somewhere around there, there's something going on you call Silicon Valley. And I'm going to find out about it. And the only way really to understand anything is to talk to human beings on the other end. I thought that was an interesting insight into the man, how the man goes about things. Mm-hmm. Then we had the Sunnyland Summit. You remember that? Yeah. In the Obama years. Well, <clears throat> she announced there was going to come a day early and bring his wife. In other words, he was saying, I want to get to know you privately and develop a relationship where we can talk candidly and quietly together. <clears throat> My wife, Charlotte, who knows all about protocol, gets an SOS from the State Department. When she goes down to Orange County Airport with her, she was going to come in and help out. She mm-hmm. gets down there. There's no high federal official there to meet the incoming president of China. Mm-hmm. And the first lady sends where she can't come at all because there's a birthday of one of her children. So Charlotte sends an SOS to Jerry Brown, who was our governor, and Jerry comes, so at least somebody met him. The next day, the ruler of China cools his heels. Charlotte entertains the first lady, and so what she like? Oh, she's just an impressive woman. She's interested in everything, very fashionable. And she has an opera-quality voice, so they have to keep her stage appearances down, or she'd be more popular than her husband. <laughs> In other words, it was a team. And that's a big missed opportunity. Then another occasion, our track two is meeting in Washington. And the top Chinese guys get Henry Kissinger and I aside. And they say, we're very worried about the North Korean nuclear weapons program. Mm -hmm. And we think we ought to work with you on it quietly. All we need is a couple of people on each side exchange views back and forth. We don't want to see where we might go and where we'd want to wind up. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but they say, this is something that's got to be quiet. Mm-hmm. No publicity. Yeah. A month or so later, I see our Secretary of State leaving Beijing saying, I just got an agreement to work on North Korea with the Chinese. They said, oh my mm-hmm. God, that's not the way you do it. <laughs> So in, so in those days, and that's a while ago, he was somebody you could work with. I see. So it sounds like what you're saying, George, is we need to do a lot more quiet, uh, consistent, and dogged diplomacy with the Chinese and try to keep things out of the, off the front pages. Well, but we need to be tough, no doubt about it. Okay. Got it. Yeah, let me ask you this. You mentioned about one of the challenges uh, in the new world is technology and in particular 3D printing, which is going to enable production to be distributed more broadly around the world, which will lead to deglobalization. Will that deglobalization movement caused by manufacturing and the development of technology challenge uh, the global environment and our ability to work on problems together? Well, it means change. That's the whole basis of this project that I've been running. Mm -hmm. There's big change taking place. And we have to identify it and then start figuring out what to do about it. Yeah. Now, what's happened for a long time is activity has moved to low-cost labor. 
I remember when I was a student at MIT right after World War II, we had a lot of local textile firms, Lowell and Lawrence and so on, and they all left. They left for cheap labor in the South. And then they left the South and went to Asia. And Bangladesh, Vietnam, they have low cost labor and work has gone there. And what's gonna happen is a lot of that work is gonna come back to 3D printing and because we don't need that low cost labor. So there's some big implications for those countries and we need to identify that and see what we can do to help them stem the tide. Got it. Uh, here's another question we have from, from someone named Paul George and he asked, uh, do you ever see another relationship between a U.S. president and British prime minister like the one between President Reagan uh, and Margaret Thatcher? It was very close. We kept each other informed all the time. We enjoyed each other. And Margaret would come to Camp David and we'd have a good time. But she's also is very tough-minded and well-informed, smart. And she was really worth working with, which we did. It was a good relationship. And also mine with Jeffrey Howe was very productive. Yeah. And then we had Peter Carrington was over in NATO. It was a good team. Yeah. Yeah. George, let me ask you something else about, I've heard you talk about this often. It's the culture of governance in Washington, D.C. When you worked in D.C. over all those decades, you had a cordial relationship with people on both sides of the aisle. And uh, it, it was reflected in your disposition in the way in which you crafted productive legislation with people from all walks of life. That doesn't seem to be going on in Washington these days. Do you have any observations that uh, might be relevant for helping us understand what's going on in our governance today? Well, in the days that you were referring to, people lived in Washington. Nowadays, they don't come to Washington to live. Paul Ryan, when he was Speaker of the House, had a cot in his office. In the old days, State Department has a nice dining room. I would invite four or five couples up for dinner and the Secretary of State can always get the President's box at the Kennedy Center and something be going on and we'd have a dinner and we'd go to the Kennedy. Nothing, no big uh, hassle about any serious thing, just getting to know you, becoming friends. So you trust each other and you can have candid conversations. And that worked well. Nowadays, nobody's there. And I, don't, I think it's eroding badly. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't been there in a long time, so I can't say. Yeah, interesting. I have a question from Jean George, and she, uh, she wants to know, what's your secret to such a long, productive, and effective life? Well, keep, keep working on stuff that you're interested in. Uh -huh. <laughs> don't stop. Don't stop. Why stop? Yeah, exactly. This project that I've been working on in an emerging new world has been fascinating. There's a riveting discussions over in Annenberg. And it's been interesting to me that when you announce we're going to have a session on China or something, you go over to the big auditorium that Hoover has, and the place is full of students, mm -hmm. full, jammed. So there's a great interest in these things. Incidentally, one of them was on health. Lucy Shapiro at the medical school helped me organize it. Mm -hmm. And the climate and health. Lucy wrote a piece 
with her husband, McMaster, who's a physicist. So you have a physicist and a biologist writing it. Very, very good. And there's another paper in there where this is four or five years ago, where somebody says, here are these conditions that have developed and they're going to lead to pandemics. Mm -hmm. We better recognize they're going to come and we should get ready for them. In other words, forecast what happened. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Uh, George, we want to get, get you out here on the following question. A lot of people have, have written a form of the question that John asked, and it's, what are your best memories of Ronald and Nancy Reagan as leaders and people? Tell us some anecdotes that you were willing to share uh, with the audience about Nancy and Ronald Reagan. Well, they were a pair. I told you earlier about my evening with them, and Ronald Reagan had this bolt out of the blue that he wanted to talk to Andropov. But I, I watched them and I could see that it's something that they had talked over. And that's what they thought. And there was nobody in their national security, White House staff or anywhere else that had that view. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was a unique thing. He thought nuclear weapons were immoral. And so he wanted to get rid of them. And he made that clear. And we, we got fairly close to that at Reykjavik, but then we couldn't finally make the final thing. Mm-hmm. But he kept, he worked on these things hard and there was a morality always present. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I know your ties with him are special and it's, it's formed a lot of you, what you've learned about the world and how you've made a contribution. George, I want to thank you for being with us today. We really appreciate your time and we really appreciate your long, long history of public service. Well, I appreciate my long time at Hoover. It's a great institution. Thank you so much. Our next Hoover virtual policy briefing will be Tuesday, June 28th at 11 a.m. Pacific time and 2 p.m. Eastern time with former White House National Security Council member Amy Ziegart, who will be talking about spies, lies, and algorithms. Amy is an award-winning author and has been featured by the National Journal as one of the 10 most influential experts in intelligence reform. You can join Tuesday's briefing at the same link that you signed in on today. And you will find the Hoover Institution online at hoover.org and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Again, thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll all return next time. Good day.